This podcast is a project of the Mass Cultural Council. We believe in the power of culture, the arts, humanities, and sciences to enrich communities, advance equity, and foster creativity. I don't really separate people into silos within themselves. So the whole person is the whole person is the whole person. And that includes every aspect of that person. Hi, I'm Anita Walker at the Mass Cultural Council. Welcome to Creative Minds Out Loud. Our guest today is Dr. Mandy Precious. She is Engagement and Learning Director at Theatre Royal Plymouth, as in Plymouth, England, not Plymouth, Massachusetts. Welcome, Mandy, to our program. Nice to be here. So I first met Mandy to talk about something completely different than we're going to talk about today. She came to Massachusetts um, as part of the Plymouth 400, uh, Mayflower 400 uh, commemoration, uh, the landing of the Mayflower. It actually left where Mandy's from and it came to where we are here in Massachusetts. But as we got to know each other, Mandy really sort of became a teacher for us here at the Mass Cultural Council around some incredible work that's been going on for some time uh, in England, and that's work around health and the arts. So to some people here in our country, health and the arts, how do these two words go together? What do they have to do with each other? I suppose um, the way that I see it and the way that we see it at the theatre I, I mean, in a way, I've always seen it like this, but um, I, I don't really separate people into silos within themselves. So the whole person is the whole person is the whole person. And that includes every aspect of that person, uh, including their health. So if, you know, if they are alive, I think we we have, um, as human beings, we have a compunction to eat and to look after ourselves and, and our families and have shelter and to um, to be truly healthy, we build community. And when we build community, I think we then build the opportunity to come together as community and then we make art. Um, and that's, that's true right back to the beginning of time. You know, that's why there are paintings on the cave walls. You know, there was a compunction to tell stories and to, and to do that in a collective way. And that made us healthy and smart when we were prehistoric right and right to the, the current day you know if you if you are got a bit of you missing then you're probably not healthy so for people who might say but i'm not an artist and i'm healthy well maybe i can extend that then a little bit rather than let's because i think we we have a tendency in the arts to to think of those um in spec- specific so you know theater music uh, visual arts, um, maybe digital arts, or but actually, if you extend it to culture, then it starts to include more things than those traditional art forms. And I would say most people are cultural, <laughs> and they and they have um, they have cultural strengths, and they have um, things that they can do really well. So some people are brilliant technicians, or some people uh, read cartoons, and some people some people. Um, make amazing cakes, you know, and so that, that those are all those have artistic tendencies, all of those things. So if you if you take it away from su- subject specific, I think most people a are creative and b have skills that are attached to being creative. And being creative is is actually sort of a human impulse and a human need. Uh, makes us human. One thing that caught my eye is uh, in the past year, uh, the person in England who is the head of what we would call your Department of Public Health, actually stood up straight and tall and spoke to physicians in your country. And he said, we're prescribing too many pills. 
Doctors are prescribing too many pills, and you need to do more social prescribing. What is that? Um, I think social prescribing is a movement rather than – there isn't any money for these things necessarily, but it's a it's a movement for change, really, because – probably similar to America, lots of people in lots of communities have become very isolated and very disconnected from from their families and their communities. People live very far from each other. We all have lots of devices that don't necessarily pull us together. They separate us. Even within family homes, you might have six or seven people all doing something different, watching a different channel on a different platform. Um, and we don't have we don't have church in the way that we might have had in the past. Some perhaps here you do, but certainly in England less so. And we have fewer and fewer things that bring us together as a community. And so, in the UK, um, things like depression or things like anxiety are just escalating, really. And there's a kind of sense in which um, that's an epidemic and. You you can treat that in many different ways. So you can you can um, you can move forward with a prescription for Prozac or some other um, antidepressant, or you can try other things. That's where social prescribing comes in. And there's a movement for change, I think, around prescribing arts activities or prescribing the arts, I suppose. So arts on prescription. So you um, have been working with the human condition and the arts and. Uh, the positive effect of, on well-being that participating in the arts can have for, for quite some time. And I remember you told me a story once about the, your theater in Plymouth and how occasionally homeless people would find their way to the great south side, the theater, and would lay down there. What was your reaction to that? So homeless people would sleep in the doorways and uh, people who had addiction issues would shoot up in the toilet. So, uh, you know, and... and People would seek shelter who were um, heavily under under the influence of alcohol. There was a sort of outrage about that, I guess, initially, and people, some people, kind of responded to it being not the sort of thing that we would be um, interested in, and we need to get rid of these things. And then a lone voice, not mine, uh, said, "Why don't we just talk to these people and ask them what's going on for them?" And that began a conversation a direct conversation with people who had very critical need. Um, and the second you start to have that conversation with other human beings, you discover that they are, in fact, somewhat like yourself, but have hit upon hard times. And the second we started to converse, then we started even that very very um, kernel of a conversation, it starts the community. You start, You start to say to people, it's okay for you to come and talk to us. Um, and in the long run, I guess, we started to then talk to the the organisations who were caring for those people. So the homeless organisations and the uh, the addiction organisations. And we started to just have a conversation with them about what we could do to help. And what happened? So the thing that happened principally was we devised a project called, it wasn't called Arspas, it was called MySpace originally. Um, and the programme was to enable people with addictions or homelessness issues or mental health problems or people who'd been in the, um, the criminal justice system to actually come to the theatre and see work and participate. And we work really closely with the organisations who take care of those people or who work closely with them. And we had about 25 people start 
Um, some of them were in recovery, some of them was, were not. Um, and they just came on a regular basis and dropped into a session on a Thursday morning. And um, some had to be pulled by their <laughs> <laughs> physically into the room um, because they couldn't understand why on earth they would want to do this thing. But when they came in, what they discovered very quickly, and this is the gift of the, pr the practitioner who's working with the groups, that they had real fun doing it. And in fact, for those people in recovery, it was the highlight of their week because everything else was quite intense, you know, talking therapies and writing journals and all about why they behaved in the way they behaved whereas when they came into the drama session they would just have fun they would just stand up and do daft things and um <laughs> and uh laugh at one another laugh at themselves and that has a really a really powerful uh impact on people um who are not accustomed to taking up space uh publicly you know, suddenly they are the centre of attention. Suddenly everybody's looking at them. Suddenly they are making people laugh. Suddenly they are building relationships with people because the second you open your mouth, that's what happens. And, you know, the project has worked with, I think, in the last 10 years, about maybe about 700 people. And uh, some some are, don't stay in the city because they've only come to the city for recovery programmes, but many people use that as a springboard to other stuff. Now, you've described Plymouth, your Plymouth, Plymouth, England, um, as a, sort of a central hub of human services. Yeah. Um, people who are coming out of incarceration, refugees who are coming into the yeah. country. And I remember you told me a story about a particular refugee who's now working for you. Yeah. Tell me so that. This is a guy called uh, Ferry Feriduni. So he um, he's a lovely man. And he, he used to be a table tennis champion in Iran. And um, he had a, a really horrific time. He saw, I think he saw his, I think he saw his brother killed at um, a rally, and uh, he he rebelled as a consequence of having seen this, and um, had to leave the country. And he came to the UK, and he lived in London, and he got into, um, he was working in takeaways, and he just wasn't having a very happy life, and he he sort of. He just sank really without trace in this sort of system, and. Uh, drank too much and became very depressed and he recognized he's about 50 now ferry he recognized that um maybe six years ago he recognized that he needed help um and he signed up to a program of recovery and he came to plymouth and he he tells it much better than i do but he said that two of his friends who lived in the rooms next to him he was in a house with other people in a similar situation were coming to the drama session and he did not want to come. He really thought, what a ridiculous idea. Why would I want to do that? Um, but he wanted to be with his friends. So he came with his friends. And uh, we can't get rid of him now. He's, uh, <laughs> he's, um, he's now a practitioner. So he's training to actually, um, he's what we call an assistant practitioner. And so he assists practitioners in the room. We always have two practitioners. And the other thing he does, which I think is where his real skill lies, he is a creative enabler. Um, by creative enabler, he goes into a session where somebody might have some additional needs and he supports that person to participate creatively. Um, it's, not, it's not a support worker in the general sense. He doesn't take them to the loo or anything like that. He just makes sure that they have all they need to be able to get the best out of the session creatively. And he does that brilliantly because he's such an empathetic sort of guy and, um, and we, you know, we're super keen to give him as much work as we can. So you've actually seen people who have 
um, gone through other services, whether it's therapy services and so forth. But something happens when they come into the theater. There's some, there is something. I mean, you, you know, it's not a magic pill. It doesn't it doesn't do it to everybody. But we have enough people who come through the program who tell us this that um, I'm fairly certain it does it more often than not. Um, so we have people who. I'll give you another example. Uh, we have a woman called maybe I should call her B. She uh, came to us uh, in when she was in recovery. So she'd had she'd had a really difficult childhood, really difficult life. Had, had children very very young she had children when she was 15 16 and she fell on hard times really children went into social care and she then met a man who was not a helpful person in her life and she ended up addicted to substances and um so she too went into recovery and she came along with ferry actually at the same kind of cohort she came along with ferry loved it um she has a special wall in her house where every time she's involved in any shows that we do with that group she puts you know she puts posters on the wall they're all there she tries to steal one of my posters (laughs) but she puts them all on the the wall and as as a kind of celebration of her achievement but she also applied for and got a job with us so she works as a cashier so she counts cash in spite of her convictions for um, various things that would be normally prohibitive. Yeah, she she's trusted. She goes into the room on her own. She empties all of the cash out. She counts all of the cash. She puts it all back in the bags. She, you know, It's taken to the bank by security. So, you know, it, it allows people to have a second chance and to um, restart their lives, really. She took a leap of faith with you, but... Um... You likewise took a leap of faith with her. Well, I think, you know, I wouldn't say that everybody is essentially good, but many people are, you know, and uh, I'm there but for the grace of God, you know, we can all we all know that there were there were there were kind of forks in the road when we were walking along it where we could have gone the wrong way. You know, we've we've all encountered that at some point and uh, some people go down the wrong road and it doesn't mean that they can't reverse and go up a different one and that's that's what I think this program allows people to do. So you've been at this work for about, what, 10 years, I think, or more? Um, um, personally, I've been at this work for a very long time, probably more like... Um, okay, that's <laughs> more than a decade. Um, too um, many. Um, but this particular program has been running for 10 years. For 10 yeah. years. And um, we have a lot of similar activities here in Massachusetts with our Creative Youth Development Program, working with teenagers and individual organizations across the Commonwealth. Uh, they work with with uh, individuals in incarceration or other marginalized communities. But through your experience, what do you think are really sort of some of the key pillars that need to be in place for you to be successful as a cultural worker, as a cultural organization? I I think we have a rule of thumb, actually, and it sounds slightly contradictory, but I think it's actually uh, really important in terms of uh, our health. (laughs) Uh, And that's about understanding your boundaries, really. So we, we, we're not social workers and we're, we're not health workers. So what, what we do is we provide an intervention. We provide arts as, a, as an intervention. So people can participate in that and it can make a difference in terms of well-being. It can make a difference in terms of enabling people to take the next steps in their lives. But it's not a panacea, you know, and we can't solve all of those other things. So we, we understand what we can do and the power of that but we also understand what we can't do. And we ensure that we have all of the relationships in place with those people who can do the things that we can't do. 
so that we can then look after the whole person as a, as a kind of collective. So I want to go back to this notion of social prescribing, mm-hmm. which I referenced at the beginning of our conversation. Do you have people actually walking into your theater and handing you a prescription? No, <laughs> <laughs> we don't. But um, and, and it's actually, although we talk about it as social prescribing, there's actually a limited amount of actual doctors who are signed up to that. But there is a movement for change towards social prescribing. And I think it's really about education for doctors as much as anything. So, you know, our our health service is in crisis. You know, it's very expensive and um, we're inclined to throw uh, medication at people. Um, It's very different to your health service. So it's free at the point of use in the UK for everybody. Um, Even for those people who are new to the country, it's it's free. Um, But it's all too easy to try and solve the problem one way. And so we're educating doctors bit by bit, one by one, that there are alternatives to enabling people to feel better about themselves. And one other phrase you introduced me to, um, and that's the funding deficit. I know that's a phrase that will resonate with many of our listeners who are organizations um, and uh, follow the Creative Minds Out Loud podcast. You talked about flipping the funding deficit. What does that mean? Um, I don't remember saying that, you know, but um, I think <laughs> well, I've been quoting you <laughs> for more than a year on that one. <laughs> so I think what I was talking about was around a- acknowledging that there's insufficient funds and um, just trying to think about how you might use those differently. And so, I mean, this may not be the best explanation, but it seems to me that if you work in partnership and you work together to the same aim, your chances of succeeding are improved. Often, other people who are have funding, kind of medical or uh, social uh, partners who have funding but can't do what you can do, you can partner with them and achieve the aims that they want to. Uh, they want to kind of succeeding, uh, and that means that you then you then find a way of doubling, getting more bang for your buck. You know that you can then there's a there's a, a a finite pot of funding but if you can do more than one thing with that funding then you can have more success but i think it's also about um recognizing that your work theater yeah is still work yeah and it still costs Absolutely. to provide that so Absolutely. you may not, not be a mental health counselor you may not be a um a medicine practitioner who obviously get paid yeah <laughs> but uh in the world of the arts, that still work, that still has impact, that still has value. And sort of getting that, we do the work, isn't it lovely what we've done, all these great stories, Um, now will you please fund us after the fact? Yeah. But then if the funding is the funding, you know, and and your ambition is to ensure that people are well, it, it doesn't make any sense not to work with all of the people who are able to contribute to that person's wellness. You know, that that just makes good sense. You know, it doesn't have to be separate. Um, we've worked in, in Plymouth, for example, we work with at least 12, probably nearer 15 organisations who are working with people who may be in crisis in one way or another. And it, it doesn't come free. But if you can have a big impact on somebody using something like the arts, then you need less funding for the other stuff. And that's that's kind of where it gets to be smart, you know let's be smart about it let's let's contribute to the pie you know i'm just one slice of this pie 
but you know, we can all be a slice. Mandy Precious, Engagement and Learning Director at Theatre Royal in Plymouth, England, another one of our creative minds out loud. Thank you. To learn more about this episode and to subscribe, visit creativemindsoutloud.org.